and welcome to the Rothwell Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence podcast. Our mission here at RCTLE is to empower faculty members in their pursuits of professional growth through diverse offerings for the universal goal of student success. Every other month, we hope to bring you a new episode that offers insight into best teaching practices, new resources, and interesting people here at Embry-Riddle Worldwide. This month, we have a special two-part episode, so make sure to stick around for the second part of the interview. Happy listening! Today we have a really exciting guest for you guys. We are sitting down with Embry-Riddle Worldwide's very own Dean of College of Aeronautics, Dr. Ken Witcher. How are you doing today, Dr. Witcher? I'm very well, thank you. All right, so we'll just jump right in. My first question for you is about your military background. Sure. Here at Embry-Riddle, we have a huge military population with our students, and we know that you were in the Air Force. So how did you make that decision to join the Air Force? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and and honestly, uh, you know, I, I grew up as a kid in, in Arkansas on a farm, and and uh, back in those days, we had these things called crop dusters, and they still use them today, and, and uh, you know, that was the coolest piece of machinery around. So, as a young kid out on the farm, uh, we used to flag, before they had GPS, <laughs> we used to flag for these uh, aircraft, and I was the youngest in the crew, so it was always my job to go out and walk the field and flag for these uh, aircraft as they came over, and man, I just fell in love with the aircraft, and and as I started exploring that a little bit more and getting more exposure to aviation and aerospace, you know, you start thinking, you go, where, who has the coolest airplanes? And uh, none of my family uh, had any military service background, so I didn't have anybody really pushing me direct that direction. But it was very clear to me that the uh, coolest airplanes were in the were in the Air Force. Uh, and, of course, the Navy's got great airplanes in the Marine Corps as well. So, uh, But uh, Air Force really had to draw me, and it was, it, honestly, from the beginning, it was about how do I get my hands on coolest toys in the, in the toy box, and that certainly was those those uh, modern fighters back in the day. So that's really what drove me that direction, and it was just dumb luck because the airplanes brought me there, but then my experience in the service was just transformational, and it, it really is, you know, what defines me as, uh, as, I, as I stand here before you this today, my, my character and my, my experiences and my, my uh, commitment to this industry that we support, and certainly to to our service members as they continue to try and do well. So that's kind of what brought me to that, and I'm, and I'm, you know, again, I was, I was fortunate. And you were in the Air Force for 20 years. I was. Yeah. Okay. So out of that 20 years, that's a lot of experience. What do you? What would you say is your favorite memory or your favorite part of being in the Air Force? Well, I, I think you know the airplanes brought me there, but I think anybody that's ever served, uh, no matter how long they served. Would uh, would always come bring that conversation back to the people you serve with, and that feeling of teamwork, that friendships that you develop, how palatable the mission was, and, and you know you, you take a handful of folks that you really care about and you go out to do a job, and uh, and the, and how that rewarding that is, is it's just significant. So it would always come back to the greatest memories were certainly with the people that I served with, and then looking back, you know, after I've, I've been out of service now for ten years, retired and. And looking back on that now, you know, it's you get you start thinking about well, the fact of service, that commitment to service, and how meaningful that was. And I don't think you, myself, for sure, I didn't really recognize how the fact of serving something larger than yourself, the impact that has on you as a, on your character and, and you as you kind of your your worldview, I guess it would come into and some obviously. It, leans into your decision making and things like that. I was experiencing those, but I didn't really see the, the value or understand how important 
those things were. So th at the time, the people I served with were certainly the best experiences I had. You know, looking back on it, I can see how just that fact of service and being part of something that was was bigger than yourself and, and that big and large team concept was just it was certainly very influential in, in my life for sure, without a doubt. Yeah, I can imagine that the camaraderie is really great because that's a very specific experience to have that only a very small population of the country has. Sure. You know, not a lot of people, I mean, it seems like a lot of people, but really not a lot of people are in the military. Right. So you guys go through a lot together. So I would imagine that those people yeah. become like family. That's right. It's just a, you know, I used to know the number off the top of my head, but it seems like it's only a small percentage, a single digit percentage of the U.S. population ever served. Mm -hmm. So it is, a, I mean, again, the numbers are big, but it's a small, percentage-wise, it's a small part of the population that ever have that experience. And it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a life-changing experience. And again, it's not one thing that you can put your finger on and say, you know, I remember that day and that time with that aircraft, that was the game changer. It was just the, the culture, the good and the bad, uh, certainly the people made a difference. And then everybody kind of committed to this this thing that was bigger than, than ourselves, bigger than, than what we did. And I, I like to tell people when I talk about that experience there is, you know, you read the textbooks and, you know, you, you, you learn about teamwork and what is teamwork building, group dynamics and all those things that you that you learn academically about that. And, and all those things that I studied and, and uh, we had to recall for different reasons during my time in the service. I was unique in a situation where I had a couple of times in my military career where I got to see that firsthand. The things in, in the textbook were true. And there's two times that really stick out. One of them is I was I was very fortunate to have been selected when I was very young in the service for the U.S. Air Force Thunderbirds, the Air Demonstration Squadron. What a, what a great team they were and are certainly today. But, you know, and you, you think it's cool because you get to go there and you know, play rock star for a couple of years and wear the cool uniforms and uh, and kind of go around and show uh, the rest of the world how cool these red, white, and blue airplanes are and how cool this team is, that, that this large Air Force team at the time was, I think there was, uh, you know, about 340 of us, thousand of us in the service and Air Force in that time. And, you know, we went out and we represented the Air Force and that was all fun and, and fine. But what was really meaningful about that is that that organization, that team, is, is it has the the, um, the resources from a personnel perspective. About 70% of a normal squadron would be that had as many aircraft as we had. So the team is you're 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 not um you know you don't have as many people as you normally have to go out and do that job. And then that job was important. We flew we flew six days a week most of the time through the demo season. And, uh, and then in the training season, you were flying multiple times a day, you know. So there's a lot of flying, a lot going on with those aircraft we had to support. And you could have never, that would have never worked. It wouldn't have worked back in the 50s when the team was was established. It wouldn't have worked on my time of the team in the 90s. And it wouldn't be working today if it wasn't that every person on that team, by the way, who are all volunteers, but that's true for all of our force today, hand-selected for that team, if everybody on that team wasn't committed to getting the mission accomplished. Mm -hmm. Their part of the mission is very vital, but when their part of the mission is matched, you step up and you, you help the others. That, you know, I can remember distinctively, you know, late nights running airplanes for whatever reason that we had, and, you know, folks from public affairs would come out to, to support us on the, on the flight line to help us out. And, and even something like uh, that in, in other squadrons might have been missed, things like, um, you know, I was a propulsion guy when I was on the team, and, and you have avionics folks, over there, and typically you would never, you you know, there's that's two different, uh, distinctively different skill sets, and you you never. But what was amazing was that if I was 
running an aircraft and had an avionics person on the ground, uh, that person would start talking to me, start telling me, explaining to me, how do the avionics work? How, did, how can I run through these internal bit checks in the aircraft? And, and, uh, and everybody was teaching everybody else a little bit about what they knew because we, we, we were all there for the same reason. We all wanted to be successful. So I would go over to public affairs and I would stuff envelopes and, and when I wasn't busy out on the flight line and they would do the same. And uh, if you were, you know, deployed out somewhere or to do an air show, everybody that had that had that uniform on was committed to getting that job done, no matter what it what it was. I mean, you, you had the experts, you had the expertise you needed out there, but if if uh, you needed a couple other folks to help you out, they were there to do it. So my point was, all those things that you study in the textbooks, where you really when that when those things become uh, reality, those concepts become reality, you really do feel like you could you can move mountains. I mean, I was. I felt that there was really nothing that could have been thrown in front of us as a team that we could not have handled uh, during that three-year period that I was on that team. The other time where I felt set back a little bit that it was clear that, that the team concept was full display was I did a couple, had an opportunity when I was on the service, I joined as enlisted, I didn't know anything about anything, and I just wanted to be around the airplanes as I shared with you. And so I went through that process, and then I got, after the Thunderbirds, I got picked up to go to pilot training. Man, just some of those training uh, mechanisms, some of those training opportunities that you have in the service, like commissioning opportunities, different types of schools they have out there from a leadership perspective, uh, you can get in those environments. And the military is really good about setting up those environments in a way that if you don't start practicing what you studied or what you understand, then, then you just won't be successful. So in some of those schools, there was a couple of times where I really felt that I was part of a team that it didn't matter what came our way, we could we could solve that problem, we could move forward. The you know the classic example is they talk about at the U.S. Air Force Academy about that thing being a, a leadership incubator or leadership laboratory in some cases. They're spot on. So it, there's there's so many of those things that I, I can certainly say my time in service really did give me some of these core competencies and, and understandings and even character that I leverage today is in leading college. I think that's a huge testament to experiential learning and what we're trying to bring through to our students here at the university. And because we have such a huge military population with our students here, I think it's great that there are many faculty and staff here that have military experience and can express what it was really like to our students um, because that's really the hallmark of learning and how people are going to latch onto a concept is if they know that this is applicable to the real world around them. So I think that's wonderful. And I think that leads right into my next question is how did you segue from military life into higher education? Yeah, no, that's a great question too. And, and, uh, uh, so obviously, you know, the Emory-Riddle, uh, the worldwide campus, uh, all the way back to 1971 when we started there at Fort Rucker on a military installation, we've had a, a close relationship from this particular campus uh, with the military services. And uh, growing up in the in the service, you know, and, and not really knowing again anything about anything, Emory-Riddle was just a presence around us. So, uh, you know, I often thought, you know, that's where I need to be or that's what I want to do. Or I need a degree from there. I need these things. And, and uh, about halfway through my career, uh, had a little bit of a setback from a health perspective, and, and it gave me an opportunity to kind of reboot a little bit and pursue education beyond just a four-year degree. And, and I completed my master's of uh, what we called it at the time, Master of Aeronautical Science at ASDMSA, Master of Science in Aeronautics. And we completed that, completed that degree out at the Nellis Air Force Base campus of Emory-Riddle, the worldwide campus, extended campus at the time. So that I completed that degree, and in that process, I you know uh, I often tell 
folks, my experience there, uh, you know, I'd had my undergraduate degree was not from Ember Verón, and uh, it was a whole different experience. But man, my experience with my graduate degree and my master's degree with Embry-Riddle was eye-opening. Uh, and, and I often brag about, we had wonderful faculty there at that campus at that time that really experienced in the industry. They understood, kind of like what you were saying a second ago, they understood the environment we were in, but they also understood uh, the industry as a whole, and they were able to bring that together very well. But to be honest with you, it's your classmates. You know, the, the person sitting next to me was an operational test and evaluation pilot. And the, the person on this side was an instructor out at the weapons school. And this person over here flew rescue helicopters. Uh, we had space people as part of their warfare center out there. To, the, the people that were attracted to Ember-Riddle and attracted to that degree at that time was just phenomenal. So the faculty certainly contributed. But the discussions that were going in the classroom with those peers there were just, just you know, I don't even know how to explain it. They, were, they added so much to the experience of completing the degree that that kind of opened my eyes and said, hey, this this uh, this higher education thing can really be transformational to people's lives. It certainly was to mine at that point. And this was, again, graduate degree. And having the right experience in the classroom with the right folks in there, just it, it added so much to it. So at that point, I started thinking, uh, you know, hey, what? <laughs> I kind of like this stuff. Uh, is there any way that maybe I could do a little teaching? Remember, but on a course, uh, as, as many of you know, the the Master of Science in Aeronautics is a, was still considered a terminal degree in, in the uh, aviation aerospace uh, discipline. So with that degree, you could teach there. So they needed adjunct faculty, and I, I had a passion for the discipline, but also had a passion for teaching and learning. So I, uh, I signed up to, hey, I'll, I'll be an adjunct professor for you, and did some adjunct teaching out there in the early 2000s with, with Emory Riddle. I just loved it. And uh, Ended up getting a really good connection there with the local campus, the, the uh, Nellis Air Force Base campus. Had a great experience in that, got more involved with the campus. And to tell you the truth, I don't know ever if it was a distinctive decision that I made to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I always thought I'd, I'd be flying you know, airplanes when I retired. But, um, uh, but it just unfolded to in a way to where you know the opportunity was there. I was having success there at the campus. And, uh, and the timing was right that it, just about the time that I retired, they were, they were trying to hire full-time faculty in the college. And I had a, had a track record with teaching with the university, and, and they kind of liked me. So they gave me an opportunity, a wonderful opportunity. Dr. Captain Moran was uh, my boss back at that time, and she gave me an opportunity to come on board as a full-time faculty member in what we, at the time was a department of aeronautics. And then from there, they just continued and to give me give me opportunity and I, I should you know I should uh, kind of connect the dots here a little bit when I was in the service my first half of the service uh, my time in service everything that I asked for the Air Force would give it to me I mean if I wanted an opportunity of course I tried really hard and I put my best foot forward but I really nobody ever said no I mean everything everything from you know going to Thunderbirds all the way up through you know submitting for pilot training and getting accepted I mean, all those things was just phenomenal. But about halfway through my career, I got sick. I, I had cancer, and uh, it was about a year there that I that I it took me to uh, through chemo and radiation and all those things I had to do, and that changed the trajectory of my military career. And from that point on in the Air Force, they were very protective of me, and and for good reason. You know, I understand the safety culture, but they were less like less interested in uh and uh, let me go do all the things, crazy things that Ken wanted to do back then. And uh, they were very much more protective of me and make sure that I stayed with proper health officials. But I, and I appreciated that from the service. And I, 
I felt uh, obligated to them to make sure uh, that I, I was earning, you know, they, they, they invested a lot in me to keep me alive, so I owed them, and I felt like I owed them, so I made sure that I worked really hard for the service. But it clearly at that point when we got to that 20-year mark, it was, we, we were even, it was time to shake hands and kind of move on. An interesting thing, though, is as I transitioned early on there into Emeritol, Emeritol was the same way. They were just, you know, if you worked hard and you did good and you focused on student success and those things that we really needed to kind of bring to bear, then then their opportunities kind of unfolded. And I was fortunate to move from, from program chair of the aviation maintenance program uh, up through program chair, eventually the master of aeronautical science. And then in, uh, in July of 2013, when uh, leadership of the university and Dr. Wattrat decided to uh, to move us into the college structure, I was fortunate enough to be selected to be the dean of the College of Aeronautics at that point, and, and, uh, which I still have the honor of doing today. So I'm it's just been it's been a uh, great ride. So I, I couldn't tell you for sure to answer your question directly. <laughs> there was every time I said I'm going to go that direction, mm -hmm. but I knew it was something that I was uh, finding success as, and it was rewarding, and uh, and it and it made a lot of sense to kind of uh, continue on down that road uh, as long as we were as long as I felt good about what we were doing. And certainly as uh, as a department back then and now as a college, I feel very uh, strongly about that we're doing good work out there. That we are supporting our students, uh, that we are that our students are, uh, you know, the folks in the industry that's making a difference, and uh, there are people out there based on their situation, based on their economic, their socioeconomic uh, environment, based on their commitments such as services to the military, to our country, that they can't come to Daytona Beach or they can't come to to Prescott, Arizona, to attend a residential campus. And why in the world would we not give those folks an immigrant experience, an immigrant experience like I had? So I'm very focused on making sure that we that we do put our best foot forward, that we're continuously getting better as what we do, and not better as what we do from you know the fundamentals of of uh, the academy, but more better what we do of preparing students to be successful in the industry that we support. That's the key. This thing is this thing is student focused. It's it's the message that we bring throughout the college, and we have a wonderful team of about 58 full-time faculty and about 430 450 adjunct faculty uh, that are out there every single day helping us accomplish that mission and it's exciting and uh, so I, I'm I'm uh, still haven't given up on uh, flying full-time but I'm pretty sure that that's at my age that's pretty much uh, done but I tell you what uh, this has been a wonderful opportunity and we've we've done good work here in the college and we still have a lot of work to do in the college so I'm excited I'm excited to be uh, here leading it. I love that your story is so full circle you know, you were interested in higher education and came to Embry-Riddle and now, you know, now you have the position that you sure. have and that is really awesome because I feel like that makes you a little bit more invested in the mission and the goal here at Embry-Riddle Worldwide because you have that experience early on here, which I think is really cool and definitely a benefit to our faculty and then also to our students. That's all we have today, but the fun isn't over. This is a two-part episode. The second part of Dr. Witcher's interview is available now, so click the download button to add it to your queue. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you have any questions or even suggestions for topics you'd like to hear in the future, feel free to leave a comment below or send an email to rctle at erau.edu.